God's word. Luke 2, 1 through 20. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Crinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Good morning. Well, very fun, very exciting to gather today, and hopefully for many of you tomorrow and celebrate the birth of our Savior. I've been looking forward uh, to these next two days together. And uh, this morning, my goal is rather than to focus on uh, a specific theme of Christmas or go after Christmas from a particular angle, I I thought I'd try to help us just enter into the Christmas story again. I know it's very familiar to many of us in this room, but I was going to try to help us slow down long enough and just consider what that first Christmas was like. And we're going to do that by looking at some of the different characters in Luke's account of that first Christmas and consider what, what would that first Christmas have been like for them? What would it have been like to experience that first Christmas through their eyes? Mark was just talking about, you know, we, we all have these very different perspectives and experiences of Christmas, and surely that was also the case for the, those people in the first century experiencing Christmas for the first time. And so we're going to spend some time just looking at uh, each of the characters in Luke's story, consider Christmas through their eyes, and hopefully you, maybe you'll relate to one of these characters, or as you, as you see their response, it will be a response where you say, that's the response I want to have this Christmas. I want to kind of take hold of, of that perspective and, 
and focus on that. So that's the goal today, to just hear the story again, enter in uh, through the eyes of these original Christmas characters. Uh, Before we look at the first character, I just want to remind us of the Christmas message because it's spelled out so beautifully by the angel in verse 9. Look at verse 9. Uh, An angel of the Lord appears, this is him appearing to the shepherd, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. And verse 10, here's the news. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Christmas is really good news. It's not bad news. It's not even mediocre news. It's really good news. It's the kind of news that's going to fill people all over the world with great joy. And here's the news. Verse 11, this is it, this is the heart. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. The news is the birth of a child, of course. And the angel gives three very impressive titles for this child. Uh, Savior, Christ, and Lord. A baby's been born, and first first of all, he's a Savior. He is one who has come to rescue people. To deliver them from something that they're bound to. And as we hear his story, we're going to find out ultimately he's come to rescue people from their own sin. Their own brokenness and selfishness that has set them on a trajectory away from God. He's come to rescue by giving his own life. By freeing people from the penalty of their sins. By bringing forgiveness and reconciliation with God. That they can have eternal life. He's come as a rescuer, as a savior. His name, Jesus, means the Lord saves. He's a savior The second word he is Christ, or your translation may say Messiah. They both mean the same thing. That, of course, is referring to the long-awaited king, the messianic king who would come in the line of David, born, as it says here, in the city of David. But this king who we've been looking for for centuries, who's going to come and save his people, set up his kingdom, this child is that Christ Messiah king. And then finally, of course, the word the Lord. He is master. He is master of all. He is in control. This little baby is Savior, Christ, Lord. Very impressive titles for a baby. Uh, And then you get this interesting sign in verse 12. It's not a sign you would expect if you were hearing this for the first time. I can promise you that. Look at the sign, verse 12. Uh, This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And I know this is familiar. We've all heard it. Uh, But a manger is a feeding trough, right? I think people get confused. Is the manger the stable? What's the manger? The manger is something about this big. It's a feeding trough, right? So it's where if you have animals, it's where you put the feed for the animals. So I can promise you this is not the sign that you would expect after hearing about Savior, Christ, Lord. You're expecting you will find the baby. This is a sign. You'll find him probably swallowed up but he'll be in a royal crib, right? Surrounded by attendants. That's what you're expecting. And so you have these incredibly impressive titles of power and privilege and wealth. And then this sign of poverty, this makeshift cradle that has to be made for this baby. There's nowhere else to put him. The sign of poverty and vulnerability and and low status. It's a strange juxtaposition. Of course, that's the heart of Christmas, right? That's the Christmas message, that the the Savior all, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, comes as an ordinary, insignificant child, even poor on, on on every measure of status and wealth and power and privilege. 
That's the heart of, of Christmas, that our Savior comes as a servant to serve us, ultimately to give his life for us, to save us. So that's the message of, a message of Christmas. And uh, what we're going to do today is now enter into the story and, and see how each of the characters receives that message, what their experience of that message might have been life. Might have been like. So I hope you're up for a little journey today, a little journey of your imagination. I'm going to give you some photos to try to help the imagination, all right? So we're going to consider four, four characters today and, and, and think about Christmas through their eyes. All right, here we go. So the first character is uh, Caesar Augustus, mentioned in verse 1. Uh, he would be very easy to, to skip right over, wouldn't he, uh, in terms of his experience of Christmas. Um, but I don't think Luke wants us to skip him. The reason I don't think that is Luke mentions his census four times in like five verses. Twice he uses the word census. Two other times he uses this idea of people having to go to register. So whenever a biblical author repeats a word like four times in a couple sentences, that's kind of your hint. He wants you to see this. This is not incidental. There's something to be found here. So let's think about this guy, uh, Caesar Augustus. You've heard of him before, of course. There's a, uh, a statue of him in Rome. Uh, born Gaius Octavian, adopted son and heir of Julius Caesar, and his, his rule started the Roman Empire, officially. Not, that's when Rome went from a republic to an empire. He is the first true Roman emperor. Uh, and with him begins, begins this practice of emperor worship that started in the first century. You, they began to worship uh, they're emperors as gods or as sons of gods. Uh, Augustus, that's, a, that's not his birth name, but that, that word, Augustus, means uh, revered one or venerated one. Uh, there's a first century inscription that reads like this. Listen to the language attributed to this man. Divine Augustus Caesar, son of a god, commander of land and sea, the benefactor and savior of the whole world. Okay, that's an, that's an ordinary first century inscription. This is, this is the language used of the emperors. And so you can begin to hear when, when, when the angel says a savior has been born, that has an interesting implication in it. Um, so this man, he issues a census, all right? So I want you to picture him. He's on his throne in Rome, and there's an idea that comes to his mind, uh, and it says... Um, he issued a decree that a census, literally it says, should be taken of the whole world. <laughs> okay? Basically, the known world, the Roman Empire of the day. So this guy's on his throne, and an idea comes to him. And he says, I want, I want uh, my, my empire counted. So he just has a thought. He has an idea. He issues a command. And millions of people all over the place have to do what he says. Okay? That is unrivaled power, right? And that is authority. I, I'd like to do this. He issues a decree. And all sorts of people, all these people like Mary and Joseph, have to upend their lives for a couple weeks and travel to their ancestral home and, and be counted. And of course, uh, a census is not just for the purpose of counting, right? It's for the purpose of taxation. You're counting so that you can tax people so that they pay tribute to you. So just, an, I mean, a kind of power that we will, none of us in this room will ever have any sense of what that would be like. And I think it's safe to say that Caesar completely missed that first Christmas. I think that's a safe bet, right? Completely missed it. Uh, the birth of a, of a poor Jewish baby 
in a very small town, in a very small province in the great Roman Empire, that would not even, that, that would, he couldn't care less about that. That would be an utterly insignificant event to him. And by all accounts in that day, the truth is Caesar is Lord. And Jesus of Nazareth is one of his subjects, right? By all accounts. And yet I think Luke um, has intentionally included this census in Caesar for a purpose. Because there's a deeper story at play here. And here's the deeper story. Micah 5.2, the Old Testament prophets who talked about the coming of the Messiah... Uh, said this about the Messiah. But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So it was prophesied that part of God's plan would be that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Now there's an issue, right? Um, Joseph and Mary are in Nazareth and the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. So the question is, if you're God, how do you get Joseph and Mary from Nazareth to Bethlehem, right? I can think of a lot of ways to get them from uh, Nazareth to Bethlehem. Maybe, you know, they go on vacation in Bethlehem or um, they already have family members in Bethlehem. Or I, maybe I would just choose a couple that already lives in Bethlehem. Those, those would all work. It would be much easier. Um, but God chooses to have the ruler of the known world issue a decree that a census would be, would be taken of the entire world. And that's how he gets this little couple from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Um, John Piper calls this providential overkill. Okay? Um, but Luke has, in, 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 I think, intentionally included this as if to say that behind and underneath the decrees of this man... There is a deeper decree going on. There is one who is even in charge of him. And his decisions and his decrees serve the purposes of God's larger story. He thinks that everyone else is just a pawn in his scheme. But the deeper truth is, no, no, you're actually a pawn in God's scheme. And that whatever you do, you cannot, you know, you can't keep God's decree from taking place. Um, What we're getting at here is who the real king is. Who is the real king? And so this is a subversive statement, I think, to Caesar and to all of those saying, who's the real king? The one on the throne or the one in the feeding trough? And so we're being presented at the very beginning of Luke's gospel. This is nothing new to his gospel with two very different kinds of kingdoms. One that comes through force and military might. One that comes like a mustard seed, small and unassuming but grows over time. And it's an interesting question to look at these two men, Jesus and Caesar, and ask, whose kingdom has outlasted the other? Right? Caesar still has a very impressive legacy in Western civilization, but I think it'd be hard to argue that his kingdom is more important now than Jesus. The one born in the manger, he is the true king of kings and lord of lords. So there's Caesar. He completely misses it, but that doesn't mean uh, that what he's doing is outside of what God is up to in the world. All right, so let's move on to the second set of characters. We're going to look at four today. Uh, let's talk about the shepherds, uh, beginning in verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. Uh, here's a rendition of the shepherds, or one of the shepherds. Um, couldn't have a stronger contrast between Caesar Augustus and a shepherd in Judea, um, These guys here uh, are shepherding, right, in the hill country. Uh, They're out in the elements exposed at night uh, with their sheep. 
And, um, you know, in, in the first century, you have these different levels of society, right, in terms of um, wealth and power and privilege. And in the first century, in the ancient world, there's not a lot of moving <laughs> between levels, right? It's, in America, we have this dream that you can kind of go from rags to riches and, and change your way. That, that really wasn't a story that played out hardly at all in the first century. Uh, and in those different strata, uh, shepherds were on the bottom or towards the bottom of those levels of society. They would be um, considered peasants uh, located towards the bottom of that scale. Um, they were laborers, of course, who would hire themselves out uh, to work. So I think that the, the best modern equivalent that we would know would be like a day laborer, okay? Someone who you would see around here on a street corner looking for work. Maybe you're going to renovate your backyard and you uh, see some guys and you would grab these guys and pay them a certain amount and, you know, to, to help you. That, that, that kind of would be a, a fair um, modern-day equivalent. So these are, these are people, of course, with homes, with families. They have normal lives, but very much on the bottom end in terms of power and, and privilege in the society of their day. These are guys who would lack any sense of pretension, <laughs> any sense of entitlement uh, or privilege. They would receive the provision of life as it comes to them day to day, receive it as, as gift, really. Uh, and they were about to receive a very, very unexpected gift on that first Christmas. Uh, verse 9, uh, an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And I love this. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. So this is the third time an angel has appeared in Luke's story, right? He first appears to Zechariah. Last week we saw him appear to Mary. And this time he appears to shepherds. But this is the first time that the glory of the Lord has appeared in Luke's gospel. And if you're a first century Jewish reader, you hear the glory of the Lord and you expect that to appear in the temple in Jerusalem, right? God's Shekinah glory that, that appeared in the, in the uh, tabernacle in the Old Testament and then in the temple, that's where you expect it. But instead, God's glory is shining out in the fields outside of Jerusalem on these peasant shepherds. And it says that they were terrified. <laughs> these nobodies are receiving a glimpse of the majesty and greatness of God. And, I, and, I, and again, such a familiar story. You know, it's, I, I wish we could go back and, and hear it for the first time. But um, I, I love that God reveals his glory and announces the birth of his son to these shepherds. And the reality is he could have done that. The story could have been written so many other ways. He could have announced it to anybody, Right? Like, if you're God, you can tell as many people you want. You can tell as few people as you want. You can, you can do it however you want. And God chooses to announce the birth of his son and reveal his glory to these shepherds, which in one sense, uh, from our perspective, might feel like a colossal waste of an opportunity. I mean, if you think like, if you're thinking in today's standards, right, thinking by worldly standards, you'd want to, I would think you'd want to maximize the impact, Right? Right? Reach, reach out to the leaders who, and the influencers who then can, can influence other people and spread the news. And so this is like a colossal waste of an opportunity. These guys have no influence. And yet God, his desire, it was precisely to tell the story, to announce the birth to these people who don't have influence, who don't have power, who don't have privilege, because he wants to communicate something about the good news. And it's the good news is that this is, the good news is it's, this child is for people precisely like these shepherds. And for the 
people like us who in various areas of our lives have these broken and hard places like these shepherds, these vulnerable places. And that's what the good news is all about. So God is, even in the announcement, he's fulfilling the song of Mary that we heard. Remember Mary's song last, last week? We heard her song. This is how the song goes. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. It is God's delight to lift up the humble. And so Caesar is brought down. He completely misses Christmas. And these lowly peasants are raised up. And they're the first to hear the good news of the Christmas story. And I like just, you know, considering their Christmas through their eyes. Uh, Their first experience is one of utter terror. (laughs) As the angels appear in the glory of the Lord, right? It says they were terrified or they literally, they experienced great fear. Uh, But then they hear this good news of great joy. And their next response is to go investigate, right? Look at verse 15. When the angels had left him and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurry off and they go check it out. And it's exactly as they said it would be. And then their next response, look at verse 17, is to go and tell people. Uh, When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed. So they become the first witnesses of the birth of the great king. Shepherds are the first witnesses. And then finally, in verse 20, they return. Uh, They've been leaving their sheep, so someone needs to tend the sheep. They go back to the sheep. And they return uh, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard. So to sum it up, their great fear has turned into great joy, just as the angel said. This beautiful experience, this utterly unexpected gift that just is bestowed on them. And these poor are raised up and blessed with this great honor and privilege of being the very first witnesses to the birth of Jesus. Pretty amazing. All right, let's look at another set of characters. Uh, Let's consider the angels. And uh, I don't know if you ever tried to picture Christmas through the eyes of an angel. Um, we'll never know exactly what that's like. But I think it's interesting to think, what, what was their uh, perspective of that first Christmas? What would it have been like to experience Christmas through their eyes? So here's my um, best try at a picture of angels. All the other ones I could find are cheesy, so I just found shiny stars instead. <laughs> so angels, um, you know, we don't know a ton about them, but we, we get enough to, to piece some things together. Angels are, uh, are creatures, right? They're created. Uh, by God. They're non-material, but they're, they're creatures who are, are constantly in the immediate presence of God in heaven. They are constantly basking in his glory, the glory that the, the shepherds got a glimpse of. They're constantly uh, exposed to the beauty and the majesty uh, and, and the grandeur of God. They're always there. Uh, you know, every once in a while, the curtain will pull back in Scripture. You'll get a glimpse into the spiritual realm, or you get a little window into heaven. And whenever we get access to the heavenly throne room, and there's angels surrounding God, there's a word that's almost always on their lips. Um, what's the word? Holy, right? Holy, holy, holy. It means, God, you are one of a kind. You are extraordinary. There's, there's nobody like you. You're in a category all by yourself. And they say it day and night, holy, holy, holy. And I assume that is not some sort of empty repetition they're being, that they're being commanded to say. But they keep saying it because they can never get enough of just how amazing God is. There's, there's nothing we can say that adequately represents 
what we experience in your, in your goodness and greatness. Those are angels. And, and so I just, I love to picture their excitement and their anticipation at this moment. You know, they've been, they've been waiting for centuries. They've been living for centuries and they've been waiting for centuries for God to fulfill his plan. And, and it seems to me that, um, that God doesn't always tell angels everything that he's going to do. Um, they don't have like all knowledge that he reveals his plan as he wants. There's this, uh, Peter says something in scripture where he says, even angels long to look into these things. You know that, that phrase? You get a sense that even the angels, there's, you know, God keeps things the way he wants to himself. And so they're still seeing this, they're seeing the, the story unfold. They don't know exactly how it's going to go, but they know that Messiah has come. And so after all these years and even centuries of waiting, now the time has come. And some of these angels have been chosen and sent to give this good news to these nobody peasants in the field. And I just picture them like just giddy, like we are about to knock their socks off. Like they have no idea what's about to hit them. And to just light up that dark night, to, to give these, these shepherds just a glimpse of what they see all the time and just to blow them away with this utterly unexpected and beautiful gift and this news, this good news of great joy. I just, I think of them as experiencing this, the excitement, the giddiness to give this gift to these shepherds. And so um, to use a, a Christmas morning analogy around, around the tree with gifts, you know, if, I think the shepherd's joy in the scene is, is the joy of a kid, a little child who opens this surprise gift that they weren't expecting, they weren't looking for it, and it's way better than they thought, and just the joy and excitement and surprise of, of an unexpected surprise gift. I think the joy of the angels is the joy of a parent, right, who, who has this surprise gift and can't wait to see the child open it and, and just be utterly blown away by it. That's, I think, the joy of the shepherds in this scene. That's their experience, I would imagine, of this first Christmas. I, th- I think their, their experience, they, they sum it up in their own words. Um, take a look at their song in verse 14, okay? Look at verse 14. You might have this one memorized. Uh, here's, here's what they're saying. Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom... His favor rests. Here's the message of Christmas. It's contained in that word peace. Peace, the gift of this child, is the, is the gift of peace to those who receive him. Reconciliation with God. God is offering his son who will ultimately offer himself as a sacrifice for sin so that we can be reconciled to God. We can experience peace in our relationship with God. So the offer of God's son is an offer of peace. And the, and the angel's response to that news is this, that word we've already talked about. Glory to God in the highest. God, in light of what you're doing through your son, you deserve all the glory and appreciation and thanks and praise because this is your plan. This is all about you. You dreamed it up. You're executing it now. You're bringing it to fulfillment. You deserve all the glory. All that to say, the angel's response is a very God-centered experience, a God-centered worship. Okay? I don't think angels talk much about themselves, my guess would be. There's someone so much greater there around that they want to talk about all the time. And so I think their experience of a God-centered praise during Christmas is a great model to us in this season. All right, finally, let's look at one last character, and that is uh, Mary herself. 
And we talked about her last week, so we won't spend a ton of time, but I think she deserves uh, another look. Um, Here's one depiction of her. I imagine this uh, as just as the shepherds are coming to see her and she's looking up at them, uh, uh, surprised by them and kind of trying to figure this out. Uh, Last week I said she's 12 to 13 years old, so obviously this Mary is much too old. Um, Probably a little too white as well, but um, there you have the best I could do. Um, so we talked about her last week and, um, you know, the angel Gabriel came to her and and she was blown away by this news, right? That, um, (laughs) the, the son of God, the the king of all was, was going to be born in uh, her, this nobody from nowheresville, right? From Nazareth. And who's she? Um, but she had this beautiful response to that, um, right? I'm the Lord's servant. I'll, I'll do what you ask. I have no idea what this means, but I'm in, I'm your servant. I'll do what you ask. And, and then this beautiful song that she, that she penned, that she wrote, that we talked about last week. The mighty one has done great things for me. I'm nobody, but the mighty one has done great things for me. And uh, so that's about nine months ago, right, from this moment. And I imagine that the last nine months were pretty eventful for her. A pretty crazy uh, set of months, if you think through what's happened. So the first three months she spent with her relative Elizabeth, right? She got to see her older relative, must have been in her 60s, 70s, or even 80s, uh, give birth to a child, to John the Baptist. That must have been a crazy experience. Uh, But she also has gone through the experience of getting pregnant before you get married, okay? And in that first century Jewish ultra-conservative religious culture, that is a big faux pas with massive social implications. And so she's been having to work through all of those implications and having to decide, do I just let people think what they're going to think? Or do I tell them the truth, which will make me even look more crazy? Uh, How do I deal with that? And she's, however she and Joseph have handled that, she's had to, had to work through that. She has, of course, had to travel from her home, home down to Bethlehem because of the census. So she's given birth outside of the context of her town and and familiar uh, places and faces. Uh, She's just gone through labor, (laughs) which is no small task, of course. And then you have these shepherds out of nowhere showing up and telling her and Joseph this story about, about angels uh, and all that. All, all that to say, lots of craziness, lots of wild things, lots of activity in her life. And I love her response, uh, famous response. Many of you know it well. Verse 18, uh, sorry, verse 19. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. So I imagine there's a hustle and bustle. The shepherds have come. They're now spreading the word. People are, you know, everyone's seen this. And, and, but I get the sense that Mary is kind of just slowing down, taking it in, wondering, pondering, treasuring. I, I just think it's amazing that this, this 13-year-old girl has the wherewithal in that moment just to stop and to reflect and to take in and go, gosh, what is all this mean and to try to try to be present to the moment to reflect and if you think about her life where her life goes from this moment her life is going to require lots of reflection lots of pondering so the next thing that happens in the story is she and joseph take jesus to be dedicated right at the temple and you have anna there and simeon and the things that they say about jesus that require a lot of reflection uh uh, next Sunday, we're going to look at the story when Jesus is 12 
and they lose the Christ uh, in Jerusalem for three days. And the things that he says there uh, that are going to require some reflection for her. Of course, her son's going to grow up. This little guy here is going to grow up and he's going to begin this public ministry where she's going to have to let go of him. He's going to say some crazy things and do some crazy, crazy things that are going to require her to, to reflect. Uh, he's going to get in trouble with the authorities. Ultimately, he's going to be um, tried. He will be publicly executed. She's going to be there to watch her son be executed as a criminal, and that will require all sorts of reflection and wondering. And then, of course, her son's going to be raised and come back to life. Never happened before in the history of the world. And that's going to require a lot of reflection. All that to say, her, her life is going to require a lot of thought, a lot of pondering. And you see her here at, at maybe 13 years old, being faithful to that and, um, and taking it in, trying to figure out what is all this? What can all this possibly mean? All right, so that's a glimpse, just a taste of that first Christmas and uh, maybe what it might have meant for some of the characters. And so we want to leave you today uh, with really the question that Mark asked at the beginning, which is, um, you know, what's the lens you're looking at Christmas through? What, what, is, what is your perspective on Christmas this year? And, and not just what, what are you looking through, but what, what would be a, a redeeming lens for you? What would be a lens that would be uh, freeing or, or uh, healing, uh, fruitful for you? What, what would be the, the lens that God would want you to be thinking about this Christmas through. And, and maybe there's one of those characters today that there's something that you relate to, or if you don't relate to, there's something that you go, gosh, I want, that's, I want to emulate that. I want to I lean in. I want to take hold of how that person um, you know, took hold of, of their first Christmas. So again, let me just leave you with these characters. What would it look like to experience Christ for you this Christmas? Uh, of course, um, we have our cautionary tale, Caesar, who completely missed Christmas. And I know this is cliche, but it's so easy, right? In all the hustle and bustle, all that's going on, um, to just completely miss it altogether. And uh, certainly we don't want to do that. But maybe you relate to the shepherds um, this year. You look at these, these guys who in that society were vulnerable, who were relatively powerless, and, and there's some area in your life where you connect with that, where there's a vulnerability, there might be pain this time of year, or sadness, or grief, or anxiety, or depression, or or anger, all sorts of um, hurts and vulnerabilities. And, and maybe you need to receive Emmanuel, the gift of God with us in that place. And you need to go, this, maybe this is precisely the place, God, where you want to bring this unexpected, surprising gift, where you want to shine your glory just a little bit into this place of vulnerability and hurt in me. And maybe that's what uh, Christmas could look like for you. Or, or it could be one of their other responses. Maybe it's, you know, their excitement to go and share the word, spread the news. You say, maybe, you know, I want to share. I want to share something about the goodness of Jesus with somebody else this Christmas. Maybe there's a family member or a friend or someone even the next week. They go, I want to be intentional to, to at least let them inside of what this means to me. I want to be a witness to, to, uh, to Jesus this Christmas. Uh, maybe it's the angels now, I talked about this thoroughly God-centered praise that they offer. And, and I think, you know, for some of you, uh, during Christmas, the temptation might be to turn inward. And again, if, Chris, if Christmas brings up old, hard memories or, or painful things, it's very easy to kind of 
be triggered and to turn inward and to go, gosh, I've got these places of brokenness and pain and resentment and loneliness or whatever it might be, and, and I need God to kind of, you know, do his work here. But you can kind of turn inward. Or, or, or maybe you just, you have certain expectations of Christmas. You've got the sort of Clark W. Griswold, you know, expectations of, of the perfect Christmas and things, you want things to go a certain way and you can be anxious and, and it can kind of become about God making sure that your Christmas is the Christmas that you want it to be. And maybe you see in the, the angels, no, no, I, I want to I keep myself from going inward too much. God, this is about you. I want to keep Christmas about you. Jesus, it's your birthday. You know, it's not my birthday. It's, it's your birthday. The focus should be on you. And, I, and yes, I've got this stuff in me, but I want to I work hard to continue to focus on you and give you the glory that you deserve. Maybe that's the response. Or finally, maybe it's the response of Mary. Again, this is a busy season. Uh, there's, we've been through parties, we've been through presents, or we will be through, there's vacation, there's all sorts of stuff going on. And maybe for you, what would be the, the most fruitful thing to do would just be stop and to slow down to create some space sometime this week to just be with the Lord and to ponder and to try to treasure and to consider just to slow down enough um, to take it in. So what would it look like for you uh, to experience Jesus this Christmas? I'm going to pray for us. And I actually want to just create a little bit of space in the prayer. We'll just create some silence for you to, to pray to the Lord and to, to ask him, Lord, what, what do you have for me? What would be a posture that would be just the right posture for me? How, what would be honoring to you? What would be good for me? So let's pray and let's just have a, a little dialogue um, with the Lord right now. Bow your heads with me. Lord, wherever we find ourselves this, this particular season, would you remind us this year that this is good news that can bring great joy. We thank you for the gift of your son, the gift of Jesus, Yahweh to the rescue, the gift of Emmanuel, God with us. And we pray even now, would you, would you through your spirit, speak to us? Show us what you want for us. Show us how, what lens you would have us view this Christmas through. Lord, so we offer you ourselves as Mary did. We are your servants. May it be to us as you would desire. We take a moment just to be silent and to consider what might the most helpful lens be for us this Christmas season.